The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, record We're live. It's time. It to is get Monday, February 7th. 2022, 5.01 p.m. That click, click, click you hear is Scott Shapiro typing. It is um, another day, uh, another, you know, critical statement over the weekend from Ben and Jerry's on issues of surprising importance to the world. Um, We're not allowed to have fun anymore but we are allowed to talk deterrence and Russia and ice cream with Dan <laughs> Dresner. Uh, Dan, it's been a while since you've been on the show. Welcome back. It has been. Thank you. I don't think I've, I, I think the last time I was on, we had a different president, if memory serves. I could be wrong about that. Is that right? I want to say that it hasn't been. Yeah, it's been a while. I, I've been busy. It's not, I, I you know, I, I, and you've been busy and like there have been other things going on. So it's not like I'm like upset about that i just it has been a while i think yeah so uh look we didn't want the next war to start without having you back um and so yeah and and putin's been holding off um, that's right yeah which is really he doesn't get enough credit for that yeah yeah so here's here's the question i want to start would you have eaten more or less or about the same amount of ice cream if Ben and Jerry's had not issued the statement over the weekend about um, Ukraine. (laughs) Will this affect in either direction your ice cream consumption habits? It will not. I I do not care a whit what Ben and Jerry had to say about uh, Ukraine. It's mildly amusing that they they issued the statement that they did uh you know and i I gotta say one of the pandemic discoveries we had is that i really like jenny's so you know like that's been my go-to for like the super premium ice cream anyway but uh but that said i i will you know i my ice cream consumption will be unaffected by uh, ben and Jerry's opinion. My ice cream consumption of Ben and Jerry's will be unaffected by what Ben and Jerry's. Okay, says so it's not going to make you drink, eat more ice cream or less. Scott, how right. about you? Are you going to? Um, uh, um, uh, there's a there's yes, a I, really I, I, important I, direction that I'm going here with. Yes, I I, I I I will not. I'm boycotting Ben and Jerry's um, now for their violation of the uh, of the Logan Act. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, um, will the statement by Jenna Jerry's affect your ice cream consumption in any way? Question mark. Yes. No. Okay. Audience, you guys answer the question. 
Um, all right. So Scott presumably is joking about this. Um, right. It's, uh, a, it's a HIPAA violation. It's a HIPAA violation. All right. So Dan, it was good deadpan, um, though. Thank you. So here's my, my next question. Do you okay. think Ben and Jerry's statement will affect Putin's calculations or Biden's calculations <laughs> in any way with respect to Ukraine? I mean, like, there's, there's a possibility, right? Like, no, nice no, there really isn't. <laughs> okay. There really, okay. really isn't. There okay, is so no universe where that, I mean, like, there is no version of, like, the multiverse where that would actually have an effect. Okay, so you don't think Putin is, like, sitting there with the chess man, like, the, the armies on the table and saying, <laughs> I have, I, well, yeah, I, have I, was I was gonna move these forces across this border like this, but then I read Ben and Jerry's statement. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying I to imagine. Do it. I'm imagining the scenario. It's like, что это такое? Морожные? Что, правда? Как зовут Ben and Jerry's? Что? He just said. Yeah. Yeah. правда. What? What? Uh, what the heck is this? Ben and Jerry. Uh, the, the, the ice cream made a statement. Uh, what? What? Um, okay. So. Right, so that's not going to happen. So, okay. Yeah. So, according to our poll, uh, only 8% of uh, respondents uh, are going to have their ice cream eating habits um, affected. So, my question is, if it's not going to affect Putin and Biden and Zelensky, and it's not going to affect the ice cream consumption habits of uh, in lieu of fun you know, ice cream consumers. A vital demographic. The, vital demographic, all, all 107 people who are currently. Uh, what is uh, the point of an ice cream company um, making public statements about U.S. deterrence policy in Ukraine? We're all totally talking about it. I mean, it's, is the answer. It's, it's it, There is a genius gonzo marketing element to this of, you know, we're now talking about the fact that Ben and Jerry, you know, Ben and Jerry's clearly beat Cold Stone and Baskin and Robbins and, you know, <laughs> Haagen-Dazs uh, and Jenny's to the punch. You know, I can only think what their responses are all going to be to this. But the point is, is that now when you think, hey, there's a crisis in the pale of settlement, what ice cream should I eat? You're going to associate it with Ben and Jerry's. This is just genius branding, as far as I I'm think concerned. it was also I, the. I the tip fact my cap to them. The today is peak froze ground freeze in the pale of settlement, according to uh, uh, somebody I heard on NPR. And so, when you think of the frozen ground in Ukraine, uh, you think of Ben and Jerry's. So you're saying that it's not going to be a rocky road if the Russians are going to like, go into to it's Ukraine. Going to be, it's going to be a smooth sailing. I don't know what flavor names well enough yeah. to play this game. I've been, I've been running Chunky Monkey, various things in my head, just, you know, and I but the uh, Dan just nailed it with rocky road. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. All right. I You are actually an international relations theorist. And we have a situation here that seems to me tailor-made for international relations theory, which is to say a 
hegemonic great power trying to deter a significantly lesser but still very great power from a ground operation or an operation against a third country that it is not allied with and that the regional power cares a great deal more about it than the hegemonic power does. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, what does international relations theory have to say about this situation if we <laughs> abstract it? Um, it? It basically says that to be perfectly blunt, the moment that Biden ruled out, and by the way, this was a, the correct decision from the perspective of U.S. interests, but the moment that Biden ruled out the use of ground forces um, in Ukraine, the idea he, he's been very explicit saying that U.S. forces are not going to go into Ukraine. They're not going to fight Russia in Ukraine. We are, you know, we are concerned, understandably, about our NATO uh, allies in the region, but we are not going to go into Ukraine. Um, there's not much else in terms of extended deterrence that would stop Russia from invading Ukraine if Russia is willing to pay the price. Now, that's an important that last part is important, but I want to be very clear about this, which is to say in a war in which Russia invades Ukraine and actually it might be the case that Russia gets actually assistance from Belarus and, you know, maybe other CSTO members and what have you, um, they're probably going to win that war. Uh, and so, you know, the question is always when you're trying to engage in extended deterrence, how can you raise the cost to another actor for taking an action that you don't want them to do? And in the case of this, you know, the U.S. can threaten sanctions and it has clearly done so. Um, you know, it, it, I think Biden said earlier today, you know, Nord Stream 2 is off the table. Uh, presumably Russia would be, you know, face a, an array of economic sanctions. Um, you would also presumably see an increase in U.S. troop levels and in NATO troop levels in countries where Russia does not want to see elevated and increased troop levels, um, whether we're talking about Romania or Bulgaria or the Baltic states or Poland or what have you. Um, none of that can stop Russia from deciding to occupy Ukraine if that's what they choose to do. Um, so in that sense, the, the fundamental fact is, is that there are limits to what extended deterrence can do. Now, what you can do is significantly raise the cost to Russia of pursuing this course of action. And it might be the case that Putin wants to do this. I mean, if you read what Putin said about his views about Ukrainian sovereignty in that like 5,000 word article that he published over the summer, it's very clear that Putin doesn't think that Ukraine is actually you know, an independent sovereign country. He thinks of it as inherently part of, you know, the sort of uh, the Russian state. And therefore, you know, it's not really, it's, you know, uh, a violation of sovereignty. Um, but of course, the other things that Putin keeps saying he wants um, in terms of, you know, otherwise threatening to solve via, I think, military and technical means or technical military means is he wants, you know, Western NATO forces out of Eastern NATO countries, and he wants, you know, a reorganization of security in Europe. Um, I think it's safe to say that if he actually goes into Ukraine, that's all off the table. And so it is a legitimate question. I, what I, and the, the 
the one other thing I would add is that I don't know, while Russia can take Ukraine, I'm not sure what Russia does with Ukraine once they take it. Yeah. Um, because the thing that really legitimately stunned me was, I don't know if you guys saw this, uh, someone posted it on Twitter, there were mass protests in Kharkiv um, over the weekend. Now, as, as someone who lived in Donetsk back in the early 90s and, and knows a little bit about the actual geography of Ukraine, you Kharkiv did? is... Yeah, I lived in Donetsk. Uh, I did not know that. The, I, you know, it's the funny, autonomous I, I, oblast of, of Donetsk? <laughs> I taught in... I was with... Um, this will out me. I was I was with... Uh, I taught economics for a year. I worked for Civic Education Project um, and uh, taught economics for a year in Donetsk in 93-94. So just um, for those who don't know, Kharkiv is uh, a part of Ukraine that is generally thought of as as uh russia friendly it's part of the eastern yeah uh, it's in the east east it is a half of the the country it's right it's a lot of it is russian speaking Mm -hmm. uh or almost all of it russo ukrainian speaking um and it was one of the uh locations that was most friendly to the previous government's party of regions uh, yeah, yeah, that would, it was it was more friendly to Yanukovych, um, and the whole eastern part of Ukraine, generally speaking, is uh, you know Russian speaking, generally has a much more favorable attitude toward Russia, and so on and so forth. That you saw Ukrainian nationalist protests in Kharkiv, um, and the very fact that it's called Kharkiv at this point, because it used to be called Kharkov, the, the Russian uh, way of talking about it would be to say Kharkov, um, is kind of extraordinary. Uh, now, maybe if the Russians roll in, it turns out the Ukrainians will be quiescent and, you know, we'll just sort of suck it up. But otherwise, it's, you know, and you would have thought that Putin would have learned this from what happened in 2014 in even the Donbass, which was a region that was pretty Russophilic. And yet in the end, you know, there wasn't this spontaneous uprising of everyone trying to, you know, want to join Russia. And so... This is the thing I can't quite shake, which is it's not obvious to me what... I mean, if Putin does this, yeah, he's captured the Ukraine. He has partially revived, you know, the Russian Empire as, as it, you know, was known in the Tsarist days. Um, but Ukraine was a headache for the Soviets in some ways, and it would be a headache to Putin um, if it's occupied. And also, it might be what he thinks is that by doing so, he then creates a humanitarian disaster that actually winds up causing knock-on effects in Europe. So maybe in a strict relative gain sense, he would view that as a victory. But it's not... It wouldn't be an easy thing for him to do, I guess would be the way to put it. It it would be easy for him to conquer. It's holding the territory, and then, you you know, it it becomes Russia's Xinjiang, basically. So, so, uh, not that it matters, but I tend to agree with you. It's not clear, like, so... Putin's strategy over the last um, 15 years has been like to create these little frozen statelets in South Ossetia or Georgia or Eastern Ukraine. So like where you freeze things in place. Right. So that like it's not clear what more they would get from from taking a bit more or a lot more of Ukraine, except for more of a headache. But I actually wanted to ask you about um, less about um, what Russia has to get 
uh, mm -hmm. from Ukraine. But in, in terms of uh, just following up on what Ben was saying from the international relations theory, what about China? So like China, so China and uh, Xi and Putin met and they agreed in in this readout um, that uh, not to not to um, not to support NATO enlargement. Um, to what extent can we uh, are, will we see a kind of realignment um, uh, because of this conflict between Russia and the United States, between Russia and China? I well, that was a, call that balancing, right? Or do they call that off, do they call that balancing? Or yeah, it's definitely balancing. Um, but it's balancing that has long preceded the current crisis. I mean, Russia and China have, you know, pursued progressively warmer relations. You can argue, really, for the past decade. Um, and what we're seeing now is that it it does seem to, um, you know, there's more. There's more ballast there, I think, than a lot of, of analysts in the in Washington expected originally. You know, I remember like four or five or even seven or eight years ago, the common assessment inside the Beltway was, well, this is a marriage of convenience. You know, both countries have their issues with the United States. It doesn't really amount to much. There's not a deep cooperation there. Um, you know, it seems a little deeper now, uh, you know, and this is particularly true once Putin decided to, you know, that. He wants to strengthen the economic ties between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I'm sorry, between Russia and China. Um, you know, sign multiple energy deals and so on and so forth. Now, even at this level, it's never entirely clear how much there is there, um, because one of the issues is that the Russians. It, it's awkward for the Russians because for the longest time they had always looked at China as their little brother, as it were. Um, because Russia was the more technologically and sophisticated power, was all was the more industrialized power. That's no longer the case. Um, and indeed, if anything, Russia is sort of a source of natural resources at this point for China. Um, but and that China said, has a has yeah. a higher per capita uh, GDP at this point. Yeah, I think so. Yes, and I, I believe it's, it's true. It's it's roughly comparable. If anything, China's higher. Right. There are okay. still some areas, though, where Russia is more technologically sophisticated. Think space travel or, or, or um, particularly in some military areas. Um, but the other thing is, is that I th this is both more and less than I think a lot of Western analysts are making of it. It's more in the sense of it's a more stable arrangement um, now for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is just U.S. foreign policy gyrating widely, you know, wildly between Russia's our friend versus Russia not being our friend. Um, you know, you can see why Putin and Xi feel like they have a little more in common. Um, at the same time, I, you know, even that statement that was issued by Putin and Xi, what was most I interesting. Wrong. What? I am wrong. Uh, Russia is uh, uh, still a fair bit higher in per okay. capita GDP, uh, PPP anyway, than, than China. Interesting. Um, you know, what was interesting was that Ukraine wasn't mentioned at all in that Putin Xi statement. Um, and, you know, the Russian, the, the Chinese actually do have some pretty strong sovereignty concerns and they actually have a pretty good relationship with Ukraine. Um, Ukraine's one of their primary, uh, uh, import markets, I think for, for grain, I could be wrong about that. Um, but that's my, uh, my vague recollection. Um, and so, you know, there are people who think, oh, this is clearly a, 
you know, an alliance where, you know, she is giving Putin the green light to move on Ukraine and then Putin is giving she the green light to move on Taiwan. That's not usually how this works, um, you know, because China has its own timetable uh, and, and so does Russia for that matter. So it's not like you can coordinate it at that level. Um, so there is something disconcerting there. And I think the disconcerting element of the statement is more on the ideological side than it is on the foreign policy side, because China being opposed to NATO expansion, I mean, might be somewhat new, but really is irrelevant at this point because um, NATO is not expanding anytime soon. Um, you know, and uh, NATO is certainly not going to expand to include Ukraine at this point. The problem is, is that Putin demanding that NATO promise this, um, you know, is an ask that he knows, you know, that that is not going to be granted for any num one of a number of reasons. Well, um, and also and also, I think critically, it's a way of talking to the, in fact, newly admitted, not so newly anymore, NATO members that he has a say in NATO's composition, and that's right. a very, very scary thing if you're Czech or, you know, Latvian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, that said, I, like, you know, my own position is, is that I don't, I think NATO could certainly, like, one way you could potentially work around this, um, and I wouldn't be opposed to this, is some sort of arrangement where it's agreed that Ukraine can't join NATO for, let's say, a generation or something, because let's be honest, they couldn't join anyway. Um, you know, there is no way Ukraine will ever be able to join NATO unless its border situation is settled. Um, and so in some ways, that's the, you know, the way the cookie crumbles. But um, but that said, I, I, the issue is less to do with Ukraine itself, because, as I said, I don't think there's any extended deterrence measure that the U.S. Is, and NATO are willing to take that would actually deter Putin if this is really his primary priority. It's more about what happens after that. How do you deal with... Oh, sorry, go ahead. So, okay, but what about those of us who actually care about the Ukrainians? And you want to set up over the next few weeks the maximum... I mean, obviously, if, if you're not going to get involved militarily except by providing arms there's a limit um but you want to set up the maximum deterrence possible um at least with the idea that you're you don't want to say things that are a bluff that are then going to be called and then you look yeah. very foolish um, is that just a, a kind of fool's errand at this point? Because we've we've basically said we're not gonna we're not gonna do anything that you really care about. So um, so don't so you don't really need to worry about what we say. It's just going to be economics, or or is there is there a is there a strategic posture that you could take that is scarier than others? I mean, there are some strategic postures you can you can take, but most of those will also take what had been at least a regional conflict and make it global. Like you can decide you're going to go to DEFCON 3, for example, uh, in terms of nuclear forces. I don't think that would be a good idea because, again, you're talking about whatever you think is happening in Ukraine. That's not necessarily meaning that, that nuclear weapons are going to be used. Um, you know, you can try to advance forward naval deployments. 
um, as a way to make life uncomfortable for Putin. You can increase the number of troops, as I said, in Eastern Europe, which is the one thing Putin does not want. Um, Putin wants, you know, uh, to maintain that buffer between Russia and, you know, the Western powers. Um, Are there Chechen groups you can arm? Oh, I don't know if you want to go down that route. Uh, I mean, one of the things you've se- I've seen is the idea that you're you is that you know NATO would fund Ukrainian partisans, right? Um, but I mean, there's lots a, of other yeah. people in the world who don't like the Russians, um, and all of them are a little bit less armed than they could be if you wanted to take a, you know, that's a there there's eleven time zones there, and boy, you could you could make trouble in a bunch of them. You'd just have to want to. Uh, you'd, you'd have to want to, and you'd also have to be willing to live with exactly how Putin would counter that, which is, I don't know, maybe let's say arm, you know, various drug cartels in, in Mexico, um, to better be able to resist, uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or hell, just why even bother with that? Fund right-wing militias, um, in the United States. Uh, the idea that, that Russia is somehow uniquely vulnerable to, you know, small scale guerrillas, I think, misreads the state of the world. Can, can, can I, can I um, ask um, <clears throat> what do you make of the importance between the Xi-Putin um, uh, meeting, um, what came out of it? Um, do, you, do, you, do you think it was important? I think it was important in the sense that the Chinese, while not necessarily endorsing what Russia was doing in Ukraine, basically signaled they're going to look the other way if Russia was to move on Ukraine. And so diplomatically, that's significant. Um, presumably, if China had had said, we believe in, you know, sovereign, you know, in the inviolable border, you know, sovereign uh, sovereignty of national borders, that would have been, you know, a signal of do not do this. Now, the other way to think about it is that... Um, from China's perspective, there is value in Russia escalating things in Ukraine, even if they don't necessarily uh, lead to an actual invasion, in no small part because the Biden administration has made it clear, and you know this is correct in terms of U.S. strategic interests, that the U.S. should prioritize what's going on in, in the Indo-Pacific over everything else. Um, now, Europe is one of the rare areas where you can say, no, that's also a strategic, uh, that, that's a really strategic priority. And if there's an actual land war there, that obviously means that the urgent winds up displacing the important. And so I don't think China would necessarily mind if Russia, if if the U.S. is paying attention to Ukraine and Eastern Europe more so than, you know, the South China Sea and Taiwan. So if I were Xi and I looked at this situation and I said, and, you know, the U.S. position is, not a treaty ally, we're going to bolster all our treaty allies and we're going to draw a firm firm line around the treaty allies. Yeah. That would have implications for Taiwan. Um, Not a treaty ally. There are some in the region, uh, Japan and South Korea. Um, Should she take this as a signal of how Biden would respond to uh, escalation over the Taiwan Straits. Uh, 
Uh, this is where, again, if we go back to the world of international relations theory, one of the, the debates that roils the, the discipline is the extent to which reputations are portable. Um, so, you know, the first thing you always have to Unpack realize... Unpack that a little bit for yeah, people yeah, yeah. who so, don't know the debate. So, you know, a very sort of simple model of, you know, crisis bargaining says that different actors are going to have different kinds of reputation for resolve. Um, so if, let's say... You know, the, the the simple argument is, is that if Biden backs down in Ukraine, although I, I, I'm i not sure what backing down looks like in this instance, but Biden tolerates. Especially because he's said, I'm not. I'm right. Not so in other words, this. there's there's yeah. In, in other words, let, let, here would be a more extreme version of it. Let's say Biden, if, if Biden had said, no, 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 we're totally going to defend Ukraine. We're going to put troops there. You know, this will not stand. And then Putin moves in and Biden says, whoop, nope, change my mind. We're not going to do it. It's not prudent at this time. Then the concern that some would have would be, wow, Biden said he was going to do something. He backed down. He's a paper tiger. If he's a paper tiger on this issue, I bet he's a paper tiger the next time a trouble spot arises, um, like Taiwan. And so that might be one way in which uh, the reputation is viewed as portable. That said, there's also a fair amount of international relations scholarship that says, no, it doesn't work like that, that a country's position in area A might be entirely different from a position in, in area B just because the correlation of forces are different or, um, you know, th the other area B might be considered a higher strategic priority or so forth. Or for that matter, depending upon when, you know, like everything I've seen on, on whether China's contemplating a move on Taiwan suggests this wouldn't happen for at least four or five years, in which case you then might have another U.S. president instead. Um, or a, a, a different leader. Um, and so the there's the argument that, no, in fact, reputations don't travel, that a leader that backs down in one area, you would be wrong and mistaken to infer how they would behave in a different issue. Um, and the other thing that's worth remembering, and this is always the tricky part for the United States, is to, to use a sports analogy, these are both serious away games for the United States. You know, Ukraine is literally in Russia's backyard. Taiwan is in China's backyard. It means they don't have to project nearly as much power as the United States does. And while, yes, the United States, in terms of its military power, is probably more powerful than either China or Russia at this point, um, loss of strength gradient matters. And so it's not necessarily easy to project that power into these places. Also worth noting... Ukraine, unlike Taiwan, does not have most of the world's production of semiconductors. Yeah, which is that's another thing, which is I presume that even if China is interested in gaining Taiwan, I can't see a scenario where if they try to use force to do it, that those semiconductor foundries aren't destroyed. But or at least that they're not cut off from access to them in yeah. a, in a yeah. uh, substantial fashion. Scott. G I just want to get back to the the Putin Xi thing. Um, has 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 China ever opined on NATO before on NATO enlargement? I am honest to God not sure about that, and so I don't. You know, I know this is probably something I should know, but it's not something that I can recollect. Among other things, just because even when NATO was expanding, it was never viewed as a threat per se to China. Um, and so my hunch is, is that they, I guess the way to put it would be, 
in theory, the sort of traditional Chinese mode of diplomacy would probably have been not necessarily like during the 90s, they probably would have been copacetic with it, with the idea that sovereign states can choose what they want to do. Um, more recently, China has tended to to they generally don't approve of alliances more generally. Um, China has only one formal treaty ally, which is North Korea, um, and they've abstained from Pick their friends. Well, yeah, <laughs> and they've abstained from uh, that, you know, from acquiring others or from negotiating other agreements. So, you know, they can now be in a position where they say, no, 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 alliances are just bad in general. And we don't like, you know, and, and also the U.S. led international order has some issues as well. Um, and so that might be why they would rail against it. But to my knowledge, they haven't pushed back on NATO expansion before this. Although also it's worth noting, I guess NATO did expand um, during the Trump years to Montenegro, but it's it, the expansion has slowed down considerably. And I'm not sure who else is potentially even going to join NATO at this point. I mean, the classical answers to that are Georgia and Ukraine and both of those. Yeah, they're not going to join NATO for for no. Yeah. Uh, for the foreseeable future. The reason I ask is because not only is it, it would be interesting if they opine for the first time in this case, but China has, a, 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 as you had mentioned before, a very strong views about sovereignty. They're very much concerned about sovereignty. And they actually have a, an extreme view about sovereignty, which is that they think it's a violation. The official position um, of the Chinese government is that to criticize China is a, a for let's say human rights violations is a violation of China's sovereignty, which is very different than everyone else's view. Uh, uh, yes, uh, they're a touch sensitive about this. Yeah, right. Um, and, and so for them to then talk about um, the alliances of another country did strike me as like rather unusual for China, which is uh, awfully um, sensitive on these topics. Um, but uh, how would I put this? You know, over the next decade or so, and, and we've seen this over the last five years, I am shocked, shocked to report that China is somewhat hypocritical um, in terms of their foreign policy pronouncements between what they have claimed their stated aims are, like, let's say, disdaining economic sanctions, believing that to be not a useful tool of diplomacy, and then what they actually do, which is to say China sanctions a ton of people, um, or they threaten to sanction a ton of people. Uh, and, and indeed, the only difference between the United States and China when it comes to sanctions is that when the United States sanctions an actor, there's usually a statement and we're very explicit about it. When China does it very often, they're very passive aggressive about it. Um, they don't claim that they're doing it. In fact, there are times where they deny it and they are nonetheless doing it. Um, and, and they so, do secondary sanctions too. Oh yeah, I, which we, the U.S. does as well. We will not well. do business with you if yeah. you do business with so-and-so. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so point being here that, uh, yes, if you're saying that China is being hypocritical in, in terms of its foreign policy masses, yeah, absolutely. Um, not the first time. And I would also add, by the way, hardly the only country to do so, the, the the difference might be that it used to be that they could get away with this sort of thing because they were a less powerful actor. I also think that China, though, I mean, in a way that I don't think I fully appreciated, uh, takes its view of international law quite seriously. They go through all kinds of contortions to argue that China has never, uh, at least post-revolutionary China has never started a, an armed conflict. 
Uh, they have a, 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 a real sort Vietnam of, has a few words on that thought. As but yeah, is keep India. Going. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but China, I mean, but they actually spend time and energy oh, yeah. um, making the argument and concocting facts in support of it in mm -hmm. a way that allows them to claim that their only military actions are defensive Whereas, you know, we do a different thing, which is we make justifications for our offensive military actions. Um, they actually contend that they, you know, do not do that. And they uh, and they actually spend energy uh, in the in the endeavor. Scott, do you have more before we go to uh, audience questions? No, uh, uh, no, I don't. Although I don't, um, I, I just want to make a comment that I don't like hypocrisy. I love hypocrisy, it being the homage that Vice pays to virtue. And the homage that I paid to Richard Wattenbarger is that I cannot unmute him, uh, which I'm not sure if that is a homage <laughs> or uh, uh, so I'm going to dismiss him and re-invite him and in the meantime, Charles, well, T, you guys the floor are is yours. Yeah. So uh, my question is, how should how much should we view this as a global struggle or Russia's efforts as part of a global challenge? Uh, you know, Russia has been more militarily active in developing countries like uh, Syria, Central African Republic, Libya, among others. So should we view, I guess, the Ukraine as part of that, or should we view it as a separate field and how what's the best way to i guess is cold war 2.0 a, a really bad framework or like what are some alternatives yes to think about yes it? it's a really bad framework okay um <laughs> sorry just to be so absolutely clear framework? about this it's pre-world war one sure and actually that works a little bit better alliances but not so much interlocking alliances but a world of what seems to be trending towards multipolarity um, with a lot of economic interdependence in which states are trying to potentially choke off that economic interdependence. And, but the problem is, is that technology is moving faster than what policy does. Um, so, you know, the problem with the Cold War analogy is that, I mean, 2022 Russia has somewhat greater reach than uh, previous, you know, the, let's say 1990s Russia. But, you know, it's worth remembering that there is an argument to be made that Russia actually has less reach now than they did 15 years ago. Because 15 years ago, they had a pliant ally in Ukraine and they had a pliant ally in Syria, and neither state was, you know, fractured beyond repair. Uh, yeah, Russian, you know, uh, Russia's proxies in Syria are now in control. Syria is in a much worse state now than they were 15 years ago. Um, and similarly, if they move on Ukraine, you're going to have the similar, you know, sort of answer. Um, so R Russia is a great power and it's, you know, definitely a problem. But I think the idea that comparing it to the, the Soviet Union or a sort of world of bipolarity, first of all, is just dumb because it it omits China in this. And China is the far more powerful actor. And it omits um, the EU, which, while not a militarily powerful yeah. actor, is a cosmically powerful financial actor. Yeah. And it also omits India and, you know, other actors, you know, so the, it, 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 I think it's the wrong framework is the way I would put it. All right. Richard Wattenbarger, this time you are here. 
and uh, there is nothing anybody can do about it because you are unmuted. Okay, well, uh, I'll watch it then. Um, so I, have two, I have two questions, but I, I'm not sure that do one them of them both. really... We have time. Oh, okay. Well, all right. The, the, I'll start with the second one first. So perhaps it's just me, but uh, mention of the human rights, both of Ukrainians and the Russian people, seem to be scant. The rhetoric that I've, uh, I'm aware of with respect to Putin's plans for Ukraine, the rhetoric on our side, what we're hearing. Um, so is, is human rights effectively missing from this discussion, especially in the U.S.? And, um, and how significant would talk of human rights be in garnering both domestic support here and on the world stage more broadly? Um, let me put it this way. I would see... I, I think the U.S. has articulated human rights. You know, I mean, like it, it goes without saying that if country A invades country B, there's going to be some human rights abuses. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that that you want to, you know, that part of the reason why, you know, keeping Ukraine independent is that Ukraine is actually a democracy, however dysfunctional or, or imperfect that democracy might be, is worth stressing. Does it rally support in the United States? Eh. You know, most polls of, of how the U.S. Americans think about this generally don't democracy promotion and human rights promotion aren't at the top of the list of uh, how Americans think about foreign policy priorities. And in fact, if you poll them about how they think about Russia and Ukraine, their general response is on the one hand, they do not want to go to war over Ukraine, which is an understandable impulse. Um, but at the same time, they do feel like it is important to um, stand up to Russia to to, you know, to make sure that Russia doesn't uh, expand further. And so I don't think you necessarily have to expand the human rights discourse further than it is. I think the other fundamental, the, the elephant in the room here on this is the fact that if you look at the U.S. wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan, the human rights argument and the democracy argument were, were very heavily leaned on in both of those cases. And they were particularly heavily leaned on to justify sustained presence in those areas. And so given how Afghanistan has played out, I can understand why the Biden administration is reluctant to go down that route, because it, it evokes those that those sort of rhetorical tropes. And and so what? and the truth and there are other reasons why the U.S. should be, you know, dealing with it. So, I mean, it, it's not that I'm trying to say Ukrainian human rights don't matter. I'm trying to say you don't need that as part of the rhetorical in the rhetorical arsenal to make the case for why the U.S. should do what it does. But what about the flip side argument, which has um a lot of negative valence here, which, you know, in traditional settings, traditionally, we are very open to refugees of conflicts in which dictators are invading uh, democratic countries, uh, including, by the way, there's a large Ukrainian community here, and particularly in Canada, um, uh, uh, that are uh, that flow from uh, pre previous uh, uh, Russian abuses in Ukraine. Um, should we be signaling receptivity to that? Or is that like, you know, just antagonize domestic constituencies by threatening to relieve Putin of the consequences of an invasion? Yeah, that's premature. I mean, two things on this. The first is, is that my understanding is we have not, you, the word traditionally in what you said is doing a lot of work because for the last five years, we have sucked at this. And this includes the last year of the Biden administration. 
Um, and so we have been horrible at admitting any sustainable number of refugees from any number of displaced places. And this is happening at the same time that the total worldwide number of refugees has increased dramatically. So frankly, this is an area where the U.S. in theory is supposed to lead and it is failing miserably at it. Um, and it honestly makes me furious every time I have to talk about this. Um, that said, if you're going to talk about Ukraine in particular, it is a little bit premature to say, oh, and by the way, we're going to welcome all these Ukrainian refugees if war breaks out because we first want to prefer, you know, preferably not have the war break out. Um, and so uh, so it, it's not yet time to say that. I think it is a fascinating political question, however, um, if it gets to that point of what the the conversation in the United States will be about any sort of large scale uh, influx of Ukrainian refugees. Um, and it is going to be an ugly conversation. There is yeah. no other way to put this because the the fundamental fissure is going to be, even if even if there's some receptivity to it, the question is going to be, why are we receptive to Ukrainian refugees and not refugees from Latin America or Syria yep. or Afghanistan or what have you? It is going to be a political bloodbath. Richard, your second question on that cheerful note. Oh, yes. Um, okay, this is, uh, we've talked, we've talked a bit about sanctions and um, we've, um, we know that Russia is putting in place to minimize the effects of targeted sanctions against the oligarchs. Um, do we have any, indica any indication of how effective those measures will be in circumventing anything that uh, the rest of the world does? And, um, how extensive are the diplomatic and financial tools that, in general, that the Western industrial doc democracies can put in place to discourage an invasion of Ukraine? Um, and on top of that, how steady an ally is Germany? How much is riding on their decision to whether to go forward with Nord Stream 2? Well, first of all, I think the breaking news on this was didn't Biden say just before we started that Nord Stream 2 ain't happening if if Russia moves into Ukraine. So that's that. Um, that was clear. I mean, I, and by the way, I would add, I no one should be surprised by that, uh, you know, not least of which the Germans. So that's not stunning. I The way I would put this, and I think I, I think I wrote a column in the Post about this uh, last week or the week before. I I have to say the the. I would say two things on this. The first is, is that the range of economic statecraft or, and economic sanctions that would be imposed on Russia would likely, you know, impose some significant economic costs on the Russians. Um, you know, I think their growth would suffer somewhat. It wouldn't necessarily suffer too much because Putin is choosing a great economic environment to make this move in since oil prices are incredibly high right now, um, in contrast to what happened in 2014. But the second and more important thing I would stress is that the idea that economic sanctions are ever going to deter a great power from taking military action against its core, against a core, Bingo. what it perceives as a core interest, is the international relations of fantasy land. This has never, ever, ever worked. You know, economic sanctions have some utility. Um, you know, we saw that with the JCPOA. We've seen that in the Suez crisis. You know, the, we've seen that in other instances uh, over, uh, you know, the last century. You know, I've written a fair amount about this. What sanctions will never do is cause a great power to relinquish territory. Um, that just doesn't happen. 
Yeah, I really, really agree with that. I think there's, you know, what it can do is raise the cost. Yes, absolutely. Of, and Russia of, will face some costs. But if Russia decides that it's moving its forces into Ukraine, it means they've already, they are fully aware of what the economic implications are. And, you know, there are many ways in which Russia is a effective, resilient, resistance, sanctions resistant economy. My colleague, Chris Miller, who is the co-director of the Russia and Eurasia program at Fletcher along with me, has written about this, um, you know, extensively in his book, Putinomics. Um, you know, Russia will suffer. Will the Russian economy collapse? No, not even close. Itamar, the floor is yours. Uh, may I also have uh, two questions with the second one first? I think you can. Uh, excellent. I'm feeling magnanimous today, and you are not being sanctioned. But this is a good example. If I were going to assess sanctions against you, it may deter you from asking the second question, but it would not deter you from seizing your neighbor's apartment if that was your core uh, need in life. Oh, my, my neighbors might actually be moving out soon. Uh, grab it while it's hot. <laughs> the floor is yours. Um, so my second question is, how successful has our policy been at encouraging a long-term objective of getting our allies to pull their weight militarily? So we've long complained that NATO hasn't really been doing enough outside of us. And now we're kind of taking a back seat and it seems that our allies are doing a lot more. Um, so I'm going to question the, I'm going to challenge the premise of your question, which is the U.S. has a schizophrenic attitude about European military spending. Um, there is no denying that there is a long and, and rich and storied tradition of U.S. Uh, secretaries of defense and presidents railing about the fact that our NATO allies do not spend enough on defense. And this got particularly heightened after the, uh, the 2014 Russian incursion into Ukraine and the annexation of the Crimea. In response to that, you've seen multiple, you saw multiple countries start to ramp up their military expenditures, although, um, and more of them starting to meet the 2% of GDP uh, requirement that that NATO specified. That and said, if Tomas were here, he would he would note that mm -hmm. Estonia uh, already exceeded the two percent yeah. at that time, which he uh, likes to point out with great pride. With fair enough. Um, that said, you know, two things on this. The first is is that. The Europeans, have, while they've increased to spending some, have not increased it a whole ton. And the comparative advantage of Europe and the European Union as a great power, and I'm putting that in quotes, to be honest, is not on the military side. Um, if you if they wanted to get serious about this, it then raises another awkward question, which is how would Europe get serious about this? Would they do so within the confines of NATO or would they do so in the form of PESCO and, and sort of European-only uh, defense without the UK. Um, and this is where the U.S. starts to get a little twitchy um, because I think, you know, the U.S. obviously needs its NATO, you know, values its NATO allies. It doesn't necessarily want, however, too much European autonomy when it comes to defense as well. Um, and so this starts to get a little uh, tricky. The other basic problem, though, and this has been... 
a persistent ongoing problem since Kosovo, you could argue, is that pretty much, you know, none of the other NATO countries are really capable of like anything that resembles serious power projection on their own. Um, they all need the United States. And so the question is, do you want that to change or not? Um, and I'm not sure you do. Your what was the second first question? question? I thought this was the first question. Yeah. Uh, so my my first question, second, uh, is uh, about George Friedman, who he often, he, he made the claim that Russia has not yet invaded and so that they've lost uh, the element of surprise. So if they were to invade, they would have already done this. Uh, this doesn't really make sense to me, but I'm curious, does, does it make sense to you at all? And if not, why do you think uh, Russia's been taking its time? Um, I think there's a couple things going on here. The most obvious one is that Putin might not want to invade. Um, you know, I mean this sincerely. I don't think whatever you think about what Putin wants, I think he recognizes that an actual invasion of Ukraine is going to be an expensive undertaking. And what he seems to want more is some accommodation about European security that NATO presumably can provide him. Um, that said, uh, in some ways, this is like the uh, I apologize for doing this. It's like the Melian dialogue um, in that, uh, you know, the Athenians kept telling the Melians, look, you know, you're going to be wiped out no matter what, so you might as well give in. Um, the Melians then go, you know, offer a whole array of reasons why they shouldn't uh, have to give in. The Athenians say, look, this is just a brute force story. You're going to have to give in. What everyone forgets about this is that the Melians in the end choose not to give in, and then they're totally slaughtered. The, Mel the, the Athenians still get what they want. It's just that the Melians fail to... Uh, uh, to acquiesce voluntarily. Um, so I don't think, I think the fact that Putin hasn't gotten what he wanted yet means that, yes, he is not the strategic genius that anyone, uh, that a lot of people think he is. Does this mean, therefore, that he won't invade? No, not necessarily. Um, I'm still not entirely sure what his end game is. I will say that because even if he winds up taking Ukraine, he's then suddenly in a strategic situation that is far worse than it was before. And there is going to be no accommodation at that point but he might be willing to live with that. Alice Lee joining us from Vienna, displaying her uncommon cybersecurity skills. The floor is yours. It must be late there. Yes. Hi, Professor Dresner. Um, my Hi. question is, uh, and there's one, I swear, uh, people, some arguments I've heard that people make against the impact that sanctions will have is that yep. uh, the... There's a lot of cash reserves in Russia right now. And I was wondering, mm -hmm. I don't fully understand that argument. If you could sort of lay that out, how that compares to something like high oil prices and then whether you agree. Um, I would say, yes, I do agree, first of all. Um, largely what's happened is that, uh, you know, if you were to impose sanctions on Russia, particularly financial sanctions, one of the things this would do would be to presumably cut off uh, Russia's access to dollars. Um that said, what Vladimir Putin has done, particularly since 2014, is dramatically increased uh, Russia's hard currency reserves to, I think, something along the lines of over $600 billion. Um, this means it can hold out on sanctions for quite some time. Um, now, maybe at a certain point, you know, in terms of the dollar side, it will it will eventually uh, take a pinch. And again, it, it's not like there won't be some turmoil to start off with. Um, but, you know, 
Putin has actually pursued a relatively conservative macroeconomic policy. He's not running large budget deficits in any way, and he has significant amounts of hard currency reserves. This means that he can actually hold out uh, for a while. And then the high oil prices also mean that I think the one set of sanctions that actually would potentially really cause Putin to pause would be if you said, fine, we're not going to buy any more Russian energy. We are actually not going to buy any oil or natural gas. Um, for Russia, because that is in some ways the one of the primary, you know, ways that Russia fuel, you know, literally fuels its economy. Um, the problem is, is that there's a reason why oil prices are high uh, right now. Demand is high. Um, we're in the middle of winter. Europe does need Russian energy in order to be able to power itself. Um, so I am extremely skeptical that the Russians, that, that, that sorry, that Europeans would agree to this. Um, and so therefore... I just don't necessarily see it happening. Um, and this is why, you know, the fact that oil prices and, and gas prices are so high means that, that Putin is in a better strategic situation than he was in 2014. Jeremy KB, you get the final question today. Oh, my first question, and I get to end the show. That's exciting. There you go. Uh, Professor... I told Dan we were going to end on time. Sorry. <laughs> Hopefully I have a dinner to prepare. Um so there's been talk about Britain signing a, a trilateral agreement with yes. Ukraine. If they do end up actually signing a mutual defense pact and thus bringing nuclear weapons potentially into play, does that have any significant deterrent effect for Putin? Or does he look at it as the UK is never going to actually commit itself to a war with WMDs for a non-NATO member, probably not for anyone outside of Western Europe. I, I'm just going to, again, there is no, I know that they, the Ukraine, I think I wrote about, I wrote a column about this in the post last week. Um, I know that the Ukrainians, Poles and, and Brits have signed or pledged some sort of mutual multilateral, you know, trilateral agreement. It is not going to be a mutual defense pact. Um, that There's just no way. Uh, and, and if it is a mutual defense pact, it is Boris Johnson acting foolishly because I'm not entirely sure short of nuclear weapons, um, how the the uh, British uh, military would actually be able to deter um, Russia on its own in either Poland or Ukraine. Um, so, you know, I, I, the one thing I will say about that is that it was an interesting, it was a rare case where I do think the Ukrainians have been occasionally very adept at sort of tweaking Russia rather than vice versa. I mean, Russia has been engaged, you can argue, in a long, in a lot of ways in sort of psychological warfare by amassing all these troops in the first place and sort of, you know, having so many troops surrounding Ukraine. One of the ways Ukraine has responded is by saying, fine, you don't like us migrating to the West. Well, we'll just sign more deals with the West. We are going to leave it there. I just want to correct a true slander of me that is taking place in the Greek chorus right now. It is true that I challenged Vladimir Putin to a fight. It is not true that I dropped the ball on this. Uh, uh, and you shouldn't say that in my house, you know, guys. Uh, Putin uh, did not respond to my repeated requests, which I believe Dan Dresner publicly endorsed. Um, and only when the Washington Post ran an article about it did the Kremlin... Uh, respond. Uh, Dmitry Peskov, uh, in a formal Kremlin press briefing, said he'd never heard of me. Um, and um, so I, my offer to Vladimir Putin stands. I am prepared to meet him 
any time, any place he can't have me arrested under any rules after he's taken an independent drug test. Those are the rules I continue. And I assume I would, you would also be willing to submit to this drug test. Right? I would be happy to submit okay, to an yeah, independent just, drug test. Because, you know, it's got to be fair. There's yeah, okay. even a, 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 a former uh, Russian uh, Russian uh, 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 drug testing guy uh, available for, for this um, uh, who Putin, uh, you know, tried to have killed. Um, uh, so, you know, just, you know, don't come into my shop and... Uh, and mischaracterize the state of my negotiations with the Kremlin over this. Uh, we are going to leave it there. Dan Dresner, you're a great American. Uh, you're, the, I think, the only person we've ever had on the show who has um, uh, been, lived in the Donetsk region of, of, uh, of Ukraine. Um, uh, uh, come back soon. Uh, we will be back on Wednesday. We will be talking Canadian truckers with, uh, among other people, Greek Chorus member Alicia Wanless, as well as uh, other Ottawa residents uh, affected by this incursion of American uh, money and uh, thought and uh, political style into the placid land of Ontario. Uh, that'll be 46 hours and 58 minutes from now. And until then, Scott Shapiro. We can't have fun anymore. Um, but uh, I, but, um, I really uh, forgot what this part of the show was. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Bye, we will see you soon. Bye.